Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, Archaeology Podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hey gang, it's your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, up from the abyss. I hope you all have missed me. We're doing episode 113, and we're going to talk about Native Americans and their perspective, the indigenous perspective on archaeology and rock art, and how that could be interpreted a variety of ways, both from a Western industrial perspective and a Native perspective. Welcome, everybody, to the Rock Art Podcast. This is Chris Webster, co-founder and sometime co-host of this podcast, uh, of the Archaeology Podcast Network. <laughs> so we haven't had a show in a little while, but we're coming back and we're kicking it off with one where I interview Alan, as we've done in the past. So, Alan, how you doing? Well, better. I've been uh, gone for about a month and a half. I had a quite a challenging bout with a disease called pneumonia, but I'm mm-hmm. on the other side. They gave me a chest x-ray and I'm clear. My, my lungs are clear. So uh, praise God and thank you for the opportunity to reconnect with all of my listeners. Outstanding. Yeah. Well, it's good to have you back and glad to get the show back on its feet. So, hey, if you're new to this and this is like the first show you've heard, then go check out the back catalog because this is episode 113 and there are 112 other great episodes. So definitely go check those out. All right. So we mentioned it a little bit in the introduction, but what are we talking about today? Well, today I'd like to kick it off and have a discussion with you. I certainly would welcome your reflections and comments as well, Chris, Mm -hmm. about the issues relating to rock art and archaeology and native or indigenous perspectives. And so I can can kind of mention why this came to the fore in my mind 
we just uh, completed the uh, weekend of the uh, Petroglyph Festival in Ridgecrest, California, and it's their 10th anniversary. Yeah. And surprisingly enough, they had a group of Indians who were picketing the festival. And they also gave out flyers. And I, I think the issues that they were raising had to do with colonialism and genocide and the, I don't know what you call it, where you take over the uh, symbolism and religious uh, metaphors of another culture mm-hmm. and use them as your own, et cetera, et cetera. Appropriation. Yeah, yeah, appropriation. So it was a very small group and they certainly were a fringe organization, but it cast a a long shadow in a public relations, you know, bombshell on the festival itself. They have been trying for 10 years mm-hmm. to create a platform for Native American education and acknowledgement and creation of heritage values, cultural values of the indigenous people from a, right. from a, a, reg- a regional standpoint. I think they're getting there. So it was kind of a surprise hiccup in that arena. Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, this is the 10th year of the Petroglyph Festival. And I don't think I've ever heard you mention that there were picketers or protesters before. And it seems like every year they put this on, they're trying to, you know, include Native and Indigenous voices in not only the festival, of course, but in the planning and, and, you know, all that. So I'm just wondering... Is this going to put a damper on future festivals? Are they going to, uh, have they talked about yet? I know it just ended, but have they talked about yet? Okay, we need to do things differently or, you know, what is the conversation so far? Is everybody just kind of trying to figure out what happened and what they're going to do? <laughs> I, I would agree with all, everything that you've said by way of reflection. And let me also mention that in some ways, this is not an isolated event. There was an article in mm. the Los Angeles Times years ago that also cast aspersions on the festival and echoed some Native American voices saying, mm. why are they using our symbols? Why do they have to study us? We know who we are. And th- these are our sacred places. And in fact, the uh, festival does not represent us. And they don't have a, a good cross-section of regionally relevant Native people that are part of the festival. And this is really a continuation of colonialism. Hmm. Put that in your put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> so indeed, yeah, for sure. A couple of episodes ago, we had a gentleman by the name of Willie Pink, and he gave us a strong dose of some of his experiences mm-hmm. with oversight agencies, the government, etc., in how they have misused their power. And not benefited, but I'd say had been quite adversarial to Native American views and values and lifeways. So it, it continues mm-hmm. to a great extent. I have to say that if you look at archaeology as it's done, let's say, in California or the study of rock art, I would say that you could count them on maybe one hand or two. Native Americans that are actively involved as professional cultural resource managers, archaeologists, or rock art scholars. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, for sure. 
So there aren't many, are there? No, no, there's really not. I mean, that is that is a problem across archaeology, right? Especially from a native indigenous perspective, right? There's just, there's never enough. Um, one idea that comes to mind is the Navajo Nation. I know they have their own their own cultural resources people, their own cultural resources archaeologists, and, you know, they send them to the, the usual schools and all that stuff. And then they come back and then they get all their they get all their training and, and work specifically on tribal land, which is really not something a lot of tribes can afford. I mean, there's not a lot, something not a lot of states can afford, you know, let alone tribes. But, you know, it's it they, they keep it in-house, so to speak. And I think that's a, a good model. Well, there's a lot of, there's a handful in California of federally recognized Native American tribes, call them tribes. And, and they are often, in, the, in overwhelmingly most cases, casinoed. They have a casino. And mm-hmm. if they have a casino and they're federally recognized, often they have a division of particular group that is tribal heritage preservation. And they uh, represent that tribe and they have uh, paid Native American monitors that uh, mm-hmm. come out and work with archaeologists who are typically non-Indian. And those natives are compensated at varying rates, but they do participate when there are excavations or circumstances where there could be impacts to significant uh, archaeological sites. You've seen that, haven't you? Yeah, for sure. I've worked on lots of sites where Native American monitors were hired. And to be honest, they can be a pretty valuable resource as well. I'm, I'm thinking of one example, working up on a project in Clear Lake, California, up, up on the northern end of the of the state. And we had this Native American monitor that, you know, we requested this, but he actually told us uh, in the first day we spent the morning just listening to him talk about some of the unique things that can be found in that area that uh, his, you know, his ancestors and and current tribal members have done and used and, and different artifacts we might find and, and what they would look like, what materials they could be made out of just to, you know, give us a good baseline for things that we were looking for. And that was really appreciated. That really sounds like a nice model for interaction. Now, mm-hmm. I've had other interaction, which didn't go extraordinarily well. Mm. One of the circumstances was that one of the native people, one of the monitors, I think was quite adversarial to um, the archaeologists and was critical of their um, procedures and wanted to identify things that he thought or she thought were artifacts that some of the professionals or the, you know, the archaeologists who are non-Indians believed weren't. So we had that Mm -hmm. uh, issue too. To deal with. One of the most expensive archaeological projects I was on was in a place called Kelso Valley, where I trained, I'd say, about 50 Native Americans in, in how to do monitoring and what to look for and how to uh, do that. And they learned a lot from that experience. But I have to say hmm. that they also were highly critical of the archaeologists and the ways in which they were conducting their affairs. They were antagonistic and adversarial as they thought that some of the sites that were discovered were sacred or valuable or significant and wanted them to be avoided, which the project proponents said could not occur. And they Hmm. actually would create signs, you know, indicating that, uh, they thought that the archaeologists were, you know, destroying their culture and destroying their heritage. 
So right. some of the issues that haven't been properly dealt with, I think, from a standpoint of economics or from a standpoint of dealing with it in an appropriate posture, is when you've got projects that are costing millions and millions of dollars and they're going to be generating you know, sustainable energy for quite some time, often the native people would like to see some economic benefit from that project. And they, they normally don't see anything in the long term. Also, sure. they, they may benefit briefly by being employed as monitors, but there is no longevity to that association. Also, uh, their sites are then uh, covered up or collected uh, and the artifacts has in museums. And sometimes those museums are not located in their tribal territories. And so there's a lot of issues that come up. Even with rock art sites, especially, there's a lot of issues that have come up. For instance, in uh, Eastern California, with one of the more significant rock art sites in Little Petroglyph Canyon, the Coso Range, Native people have said they would not like to have any public tours because the place is too sacred, and they'd like, like to see that whole canyon mm. shut down. And so that's been an issue. Additionally, often, frequently, and, and the lion's share of archaeologists that study rock art do not involve the Native American perspective on that, what that rock art means in any of their discussions or professional papers or presentations or what have you. They really avoid them, or they say that, that how could they know anything about this rock art? It's hundreds or thousands of years old, and these Native people, their cultures have been shattered or destroyed, and really, they have no connection to these resources. Have you heard of that? Hmm. Yeah, for sure. I have. Yeah, I have. Definitely. And, you know, I've got some thoughts on that. And let's take a break and continue this on the other side. Back in a minute. Hey, Archaeology Podcast fans. Anyone that's heard me on a show has likely heard me mention coffee one or probably a thousand times. Coffee, however awesome it is, has some downsides and should be consumed in moderation. That's why we partnered with Laird Superfoods. They've got lots of stuff, but their coffee and coffee creamers have been engineered to taste better, provide functional benefits, and don't contain any refined sugars. So are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code ARCPODNETFEED at checkout and save 15% on your purchase today. You can also click the link in your show notes. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for a dollar 49 perfect with our classic fries price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 113. And we are talking about, well, to be honest, a tough topic, especially as, you know, white archaeologists studying Native American culture. And one of the things I was thinking about was, you know, it's it's such a it's such a unique circumstance that we have here in the United States. Well, I think it happens in Australia too, actually, with their indigenous populations, is you have a whole entire profession of people. They're not all white. I mean, there's black, white. There are Native American archaeologists. There's Latino. There's all kinds of archaeologists out there, right? But to be honest, most of them are white. It's just, I don't know why, but that's just... That's just one of those professions that happens to swing that direction, and I don't understand it. But the interesting thing is, I mean, I mean, most of us got into this field because, you know, especially if you're studying prehistoric archaeology, is we want to know the origins of things. That was my start. I, I started studying paleoanthropology. I wanted to know the, the real origins of things. Where did humans start, right? Well, my career in my education never really went that direction. So I couldn't really go that direction. <laughs> so, you know, I started doing North American archeology span and, you know, you still, you just want to know the origins. That's the questions I'm interested in. When did people get to this, you know, to North America? When did people get to this little Valley right here? You know, when did that happen? How did it happen? Who was it? What were they doing? What were their lives like? It's just a fascination with the culture as a whole. And then on the other side, you've got the, the descendants of that culture going, yeah, but but that's ours, and and we don't want you to either know that or learn that, right? But it comes from a place on this side of just wanting to understand, and then of course you throw in all the the pipelines and the WalMarts and the and the oil fields and all that other stuff that is thrown into this whole thing that really sucks for them because they don't get to partake in that. But I'll tell you what, neither do we as archaeologists. You know, we're still getting paid a, a pretty low wage, to be honest with you. But it's very few people that benefit from things like that. And I think as archaeologists, I try to look at it as, well, the more we can learn about past civilizations, that's the benefit that, that we can provide to, you know, to other people that want to know this story, right? It's just it's difficult because it's not really our story to tell, but then again, nobody else is telling it and we feel compelled to, which I don't know if we should or not. You know what I mean? It's tough. Well, I think that the way to go about this in the future is to incorporate the native perspective. And we only do that mm -hmm. by actually involving them and listening to them. And when we publish or when we produce books or articles or presentations or cinematic expositions, they would have a chance to share their own perspective on archaeology, on rock art, and on their uh, sacred ceremonial religious iconography. As you mentioned, in Australia, mm -hmm. sometimes the uh, creation of rock art paintings is still going on. And there are mm -hmm. individuals that, that know the stories that they're telling and know the reasons that they're created and can deconstruct and provide meaning for those images. That doesn't happen as often in North America or other places around the world, but occasionally it does. And so I've certainly had an, had an experience where I partnered with a Native American and we co-wrote or co-published, co-authored a book on Kawaisu handbook where these mm -hmm. uh, Southern Paiute natives were uh, acknowledged and recognized. And it told the story of their land mm -hmm. and their culture and paid homage 
to their uh, places and their creations. And so at least that, that, that goes a step in the right direction. Yet others would say, well, you were the senior author on this book. You made money on the book. Where did the money go when the sale of these, of these books should generate income for the Kauai Sioux Nation? And I've heard mm-hmm. that from Kauai Sioux, members of that indigenous tribe. So, and that's valid, certainly valid. Right. And additionally, is it a fact or is it something that we can live with to say that these rock pictures, these, these images on stone, are the um, heritage exclusively of the native people and their descendants and the non-Indians, the non-native people, have no right to study, explore, preserve, conserve, visit, etc., or access any of these resources. I don't think that that bodes mm-hmm. well for us as in, as a profession, and I don't think that is really a valid view. I think this uh, heritage, these cultural resources, are a legacy, a body of of uh, resources that I think we all. We, we should be able to enjoy collectively. Uh, do you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. But again, that's, you know, that's our perspective, that's, right? And, right, right. <laughs> and not everybody shares that. Yeah. And it's, and that's what makes it really tough. That's what makes it really tough because, you know, there's, the other thing is, especially when it comes to things like rock art, I mean, we've talked about on this program before, it is extremely difficult to date rock art, right? And dating things obviously is what helps us give attribution to a time period first off, but then also if we have other evidence, the people that that did it, because we can say, well, they were there at this time, dot, 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 right. they made the rock art, right? And and right. that's the that's the idea. But it's very hard to do that. And a lot of rock art sites are, you know, probably largely undated or just loosely dated based on things around them or based on the, the imagery itself or something like that. And so we live in a world of proof. We live in a world where everything requires evidence. Everything requires proof from legal issues to, you know, to medicine, to other sciences and archaeology is no different, you know, so, so for us to do that. But that's where we kind of get into trouble too, right? Because, the one thing in this a, world that doesn't require proof is religion, right? If people right, say right. I'm religious and that's what I believe, well, we just kind of back away and say, yep, okay, that's actually true. And then it's just so cloudy when we we mix the the Native American cultural heritage, which is religion to them, right? Is definitely religion. Right, we right. mix that with archaeology and science and wanting to know more and they clash, right? Whereas studying right. Christianity or studying Judaism or something like that, we can, we can do that. And there doesn't seem to be a cultural issue with that, right? So it's all very confusing. <laughs> right. And what we're dealing with is a clash in theology. The yeah. Western industrial perspective demands proof the native perspective has to do with a whole different theorems regarding power and sacredness and uh, the, the connections or unifications of the natural world and the human world. And what I mean mm-hmm. by that is I've discussed this, you know, in, in many of the podcasts, that theology is animism, 
is shamanism, is totemism, and all of these other elements that are very foreign, very antithetical to a Western industrial mind. Am I correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yes. Right. Now, only now, you know, 2023, at the end of beginning 2024, shortly, we're finding that, for instance, shamanism and the use of certain psychotropic substances is being embraced by modern science as a means of affecting the uh, problems of our culture, including mm-hmm. de- depression, anxiety, other sorts of physiological perspectives from humankind. And they're finding that by using these psychotropic substances, people's minds are changed. They're expanded. They're transformed. They find a reason to exist. They understand the world in a whole different way than they've done before. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. And again, one of the interesting things about that is you see cultures all around the world. You know, you've traveled all over the place. I've been all over the place. Um, You see cultures all around the world, I guess, profiting off of their off of their cultural knowledge and heritage in ways like, like for example, drugs or <laughs> something along those lines, yeah. medicinal things, right? Or procedures yeah. or, you know, something yeah. along those lines. The tourists come in, they're more than happy to take their money and say, here, this will make you better. This will do a thing, you know, do that. And yet you talk to Native American scholars in particular and it's very much the opposite, right? They don't, they don't really want to share any of that. But then again, they don't all they don't all feel that way. Like we're driving through New Mexico um, just the other day and we're on the eastern side of New Mexico right now. And you drive through Arizona, New Mexico, and there is just about every exit has some sort of claims to be Native American trading post kind of thing where you can get, you know, you know rugs and, and, and blankets weaved by Native Americans and authentic Native American gifts and authentic Native American pots and authentic Native American this and that. So I say more power to them if they can make money off the tourists by selling those things and by, you know, by maybe in in some little way promoting their culture and their heritage through that as well, not just as a trinket you buy on the, you know, on the interstate on Route 66. It's interesting, right? But again, not everybody feels that way. It's very polarizing, I think, even amongst the Native American community on essentially selling your culture. You know what I mean? And and well, profiting yes, off yes, of that. Well, yes and no. I'll give you an example. There's a Navajo silversmith that attends the uh, International Rock Art Conference, who is a a Navajo from uh, Arizona. Mm -hmm. And he sells his silver extraordinary jewelry for Mm. quite a a price. I bought a a cuff for $700. And other other people certainly were willing to spend uh, an equivalent amount because he is such an exquisite craftsman and artisan. So there are exceptions, correct? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the same thing goes with uh, my story about the people that learned how to be Native American monitors. Out of that group of mm-hmm. 50, there's one or two who actually became professional Native American cultural resource managers. And they made a business, a, a, right. literally a, a profe- profession yeah out of that experience. So it doesn't always go south, but Mm -hmm. only rarely and only exceptionally 
do we find that? Have you had any experience like that? Yeah, yeah. You know, definitely worked with professionals in the past. But then again, that word professional is kind of loaded too, right? Like somebody, right. somebody gets, some of these tribes, they really give a lot of training, a lot of cultural resource training in-house to their monitors. And these people may have no more than a high school degree, right? But their cultural that's, that's knowledge, correct. because of what they're given by the, by the tribe, is way more than I'll ever have, right? Way more than any, quote, professional archaeologist will probably ever have either. So... Again, for us to, it's all perspective, right? Which is what we're talking about. For us to go say, you know, well, they're professional. They need to go to college and they need to have a degree of some sort, right? And that's not necessarily true in their culture. So I have a, an interesting perspective on that. Native Americans have hired me to teach them their culture. Mm-hmm. I was hired, hired by the Kauaisu, the Tabatalabal. I was hired by the Sierra Miwok to literally teach them Native, Native American monitoring, teach them cultural resource management, teach them about what an anthropologist or an archaeologist might know or think about indigenous cultures, the peopling of the Americas, archaeology, anthropology, etc. I spent a week mm-hmm. doing that amongst the Miwok, and I was paid to do that. I did the same thing with the Owens Valley Career Development Center and brought the Native people to see indigenous archaeological sites and rock art sites, men, women, Mm. children, families, etc. And those were, for me, some of the most enriching and wonderful experiences of my life. Hmm. That's great, right? And it's, it's 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 a unique experience, for sure. Yeah. And so... I, I try to always have a positive spin. My colleagues have told me I always wear rose-colored glasses. And <laughs> if, I, if I saw a field of cow manure, I'd say, what a, what a wonderful source for fertilizer. So in any event, I try to work with Native Americans and enhance their personal value, their recognition, their ability to understand or appreciate my perspective. I think partly... In many instances, to some instances, anyways, I'm I'm viewed as a with a bit of a kinship because I am so so religious um, and such a student mm-hmm. of their culture mm. as well as my own. So right. I think one of the larger problems is many archaeologists, or many I don't know how many, but in my experience, most archaeologists are non-religious people. Would you agree or not, Chris? I would tend to, I guess, agree to a standpoint. I've heard so many say that they're, they don't subscribe to a religion, but they're spiritual, that kind of thing. But yeah, as somebody who's not religious, I sometimes feel like that's a cop-out and they're not just willing to go full tilt and <laughs> say they're not religious. Yeah, exactly. But that yeah. being said, I mean, for me, I just... I, I lean back on the science and I can't get away from it, but that's how my mind was developed in, you know, early childhood and, and sure. not everybody's like that. Obviously I'm definitely in the minority on that. So, but it can't be helped. So, you know, so I think native people are often very religious people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, sometimes religious people in the sense that they, they may be part of a formal religion, Catholic or Christian, but they also tend to retain a special association and religious fervor for their own mm-hmm. Native American traditions at the same time. So there's mm-hmm. this syncretism, as it's called, right? 
a syncretism right. where there's both the adopted religion and their native religion integrating as one. There's a Native American church where they drum and they dance. There's uh, Christian expressions that uh, also follow certain other religious beliefs. Anyways, I think you understand mm -hmm. my point. I do. And let's finish up this discussion on the other side. We're going to take our break right now and we'll come back with our, our final thoughts on this topic in segment three. Back in a minute. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 113. And we were talking about, you know, native indigenous perspectives on rock art cultural heritage, history. And I got to acknowledge right off the bat, which I probably should have done in the, in the first segment, that I think Dr. Allen and I both understand the irony of two white professional archaeologists discussing Native American perspectives. <laughs> We're not trying to pretend to know any, you know, any answers or even provide any solutions, to be honest with you. This is just, I guess, our take in our certain niche in this world on this topic, you know, especially given the the protesters at the Petroglyph Festival in Ridgecrest, because, you know, the, the, the people who put on that festival think that from their perspective, they are doing everything that they can to help promote and, and therefore protect through education of the wider the wider public. You know, the Native American, not only cultural heritage, but just the the thoughts and the ideas that they have, you know, without people knowing those, keeping those close to the vest, nobody really knows it. You know, it's why a lot of languages go extinct. What do they say? Like one language goes extinct like every week or something like that. That's correct. Because not enough people are speaking it. Not enough people are putting it out there and, and not enough people have studied it in order to retain that language. So it's the same with your cultural heritage. If you really want it to die, then don't tell anyone about it. Right. And maybe that's exactly <laughs> what they want. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. Well, no, yes, yes and no. When I worked on the Kawaiisu Handbook, one of my primal motivations to do that was that even the anthropologist, who is most well-known as an expert on the Kawaiisu, had said they went extinct and that there's, that there's no more Kawaiisu. Well, that wasn't mm. true. There was hundreds of Kawaiisu, and they... They knew their culture, they have uh, ancestry, and there was even some that were still speaking the language. Not many, but some. And just because we don't, they don't live in teepees and they don't uh, make drawings on rocks anymore doesn't mm -hmm. mean they're not native people at heart and have uh, an avowed interest in their heritage and in preserving their indigenous voice and their uh, native tribal identification. 
So with that in mind, I wanted to show archaeologists, anthropologists, that the Kauaisu are still here. There's lots of information about them. And please recognize that these people have a, a heritage and a valuable one. And let's pay them homage and recognize their significance. Mm-hmm. So I think that was the, that's the same voice as the Ridgecrest Petroglyph Festival. But again, you, you walk a, a fine line because one can validly say, these are my ancestral etchings on rocks. You're never going to understand them. Mm-hmm. They're valuable and sacred and powerful for us as Indians. You have no right to ex- access them nor to you know, adopt them as your own signature or emblems or to sell depictions of them in your shop, such as the Matarango Museum, or to replicate them on rocks and sell them. Those are all things that offend me, and please don't do that. So mm-hmm. if, if that's the case, then uh, an institution like the Matarango Museum that is based on those principles of taking those images and emblazoning them on rocks, on, on glassware, on plates, on, you know, tank tops and other sorts of pieces of, you know, clothing can be seen as, as you said it, appropriation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When, and then one would say that isn't this just a continuation of colonialism and the Western idea of entrepreneur and business and commercialism and taking the sacred images and using them as a means of generating income for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even if the, I mean, I see the perspective too, because even if the Petroglyph Festival as say an organization or an entity you know, really doesn't make a whole lot of money off the festival. I'd be really surprised if they did, maybe to cover costs or something like that. But the city of Ridgecrest certainly gets a benefit from 50,000 people showing up for the weekend to spend money there and sure. do different things, right? Sure. So that's an of economic course. benefit to the city, yeah. Big time. And, 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 they, and they've emblazoned the city with the signature, mm-hmm. we, are the, we are the city of the petroglyphs. That's <laughs> right. What, and they have, they have images all over Ridgecrest, on the trash cans, on the signs, every place there's petroglyphs. Yeah, it's no, it's it's crazy, right? Um, and and that's the thing that I wanted to talk about too, though, because it's really hard for I feel like you know modern peoples, so to speak, which is everybody who lives right now, to keep things small, right? We always want to we always want to start something and say, you know what, I want to grow this, so everybody comes and it's massive and 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 people love it. Well, it sounds like they're victims of their own success a little bit, right? Because the bigger this gets, the more people that come in, the more commercialized it's inevitably going to feel. Even if this was an That's entirely true. Native American run festival with every single person being a Native American and enjoying everything, somebody is still going to have an issue with it because of the amount of success it's had, because of how big it is, because of all the people coming in and then all the other, you know, the ancillary appropriation that's happening, you know, because even if they said, don't do this, the city would probably still put petroglyphs on the trash cans. You know what I mean? So, of course. Yeah. 
And I don't know how to fix that, right? I don't know how to fix that. It's a conundrum. It's a in, inescapable problem yeah. that I think will only be yeah. assuaged, assuaged if we come together in some fashion and bring na- bring the native voice into right. uh, into commission. And that's not so easy to do, is it? It's not. But, you know, we try to do what we can. And if anybody is listening to this podcast that that knows any Native American scholars, I mean, not even they don't have to be they they have to just self-identify as a scholar. Let's just say that way. You know, if they're knowledgeable on a topic, we would love to have them on the show. Right. Uh, Especially talking about rock art and things of that nature on this show, but also on any other show in the Archaeology Podcast Network. In fact, there's a whole podcast dedicated to indigenous voices, basically. It's called Heritage Voices and hosted by Jessica Akinto. Um, she's been doing this for about five or six years now, seven years, something like that. And uh, it's a great podcast. So we, we try to, I guess, enhance those kinds of things. But again, it's really difficult because people just sometimes don't want to come onto a podcast, you know, no matter how much you ask them. <laughs> so, but the platform is here. So that's, I guess that's the best we can do, uh, so to speak. Anyway, well, I, yeah, I think that's that that puts a puts a bow on it, and mm-hmm. I uh, pro- I promise we'll have more uplifting and educational topics in the future. <laughs> so, see you in the flip flop, gang. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.